All right, so Zechariah chapter 5 turns our attention back to the people in general. Um, So far in Zechariah, God has made some specific prophecies about the about the people and about Jerusalem and and um, the God's people will thrive God has promised them that they'll be victorious the nothing will be able to stand against them the city will be rebuilt uh, the people will be reestablished God will dwell amongst them um, etc etc in chapter 3 and 4 Zechariah turned our attention to the two leaders of the people and how God you know, purpose to work through them. In Zechariah 3, we saw Joshua, the high priest. Uh, he's uh, given God's own righteousness to carry out his duties as the high priest and to uh, to uh, intercede for the people. We saw that uh, courtroom scene. Um, in Zechariah chapter 4, it focused on Zerubbabel. Um, of course, he's also having all kinds of problems completing the task God's given him. You know, Joshua and Zerubbabel both, uh, the Zechariah three and four demonstrate how God is going to uh, going to meet them in, in the midst of their need as they're carrying out God's duties. And um, you know, God showed Zechariah in chapter four that Zerubbabel will um, he'll definitely succeed in the task he's given. He'll finish the temple. Uh, reestablish the city uh, but it won't be by his power or his strength we saw that in the last chapter it'll be by God's spirit that the task is done and we learned um, it was a, it was a lesson for us in the fact that uh, uh, the battle's not ours um, all we have to do is worry about our brick so to speak we're building the house of God as well the kingdom is advancing through us but uh, we don't have the big picture we just worry about our brick we put our head down and we do the work that we're called to do and and leave the leave the battle and the victory the ultimate ultimate victory the war to God so so far in Zechariah we've We've been given good news. We've been given encouraging reports, prophecies of wonderful things to come uh, regarding God's people, the tasks that God set them to. Uh, As we come into chapter 5, we're also going to get some good news. Uh, but Zechariah provides us with a perfect balance as well. Uh, in the Christian life, I've said it a million times in so many things, we need to make sure that we understand uh, the balance. The balance that I'm talking about is is between the victory and the promises of God, the uh, ultimate fulfillment of our righteousness and grace, uh, and also, you know, uh, realizing the salvation, deliverance God's provide. But that also is balanced with a heart that uh, that hates sin. Uh, many people today they. They love talking about God's grace and forgiveness, and so do I. I mean, without grace, forgiveness, none of us would be anything. None of us would. Uh, none of us would come to God if it were not for His, His grace. If it were not His for His, His Holy Spirit drawing us. Um, Romans three says, "No one does good, not even one." So, uh, we're not segregating people into those that are better than others or those that do better than others. We're all in the same boat. Um, and so grace is a powerful thing. It's something we need not um, disparage. Um, without it, we don't have a prayer of being in the presence of God. But um, we also need to make sure that uh, we understand that the Bible's clear that the new heart that comes with that grace, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, uh, when a person's converted, when they're changed into a new creature, um, 
that new heart is one that's going to be at war with sin. Uh, you can't have one without the other. There's no, there's no salvation where there's no regenerated heart that battles sin with all its might. Um, not saying that you're perfect or you're never going to do anything wrong or anything like that. We're talking about an ongoing struggle between the Holy Spirit in your in your life and uh, the flesh that that still uh, that uh, still encapsulates us. So here, here in chapter five, God is going to He's going to give us a picture of this war against sin. Uh, God is going to take sin personally, so to speak. He's going to He's going to show Zechariah how He's going to show him that the people have a problem, and the problem is sin. The problem is that God will always judge sin. Uh, sin will it'll always be punished. It'll never ever be winked at. Uh, as a perfect, just God, He can't just demi- dismiss sin. Uh, so many people think that way. They think that God is just blinking His eyes and saying, "You know what? I'm not going to worry about that." Um, that's not how it is. God's a just God, and He's a holy God. So, as we begin, I'm rambling on, but as we begin this chapter, um, remember that we're we're commanded to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith or not. There is no such thing as a saved person who does not battle against sin. Um, so once again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. A believer can't just romp off into sin without the discipline. Uh, the conviction, the chastisement of the Holy Spirit, because God Himself is at war with sin, and this is the picture that we'll see. The first thing we see in Zechariah five is that all sin will be discovered. You cannot hide sin. Many of us think that as long as as long as we aren't, hurt, aren't hurting anyone, that uh, you know, our, as long as our public testimony is not affected, we can just pretty much do anything we want in the privacy of our own homes. Uh, but God sees all and God judges all, and that's not the case. There is no sin that we can get and engage in uh, in which God will not see. And, and you can bet your bottom dollar that it will also come out eventually. Sin has a way of being found out. Um, even if you never have it brought into the public eye of this life, though, um, there's coming a day when everything that's done in the dark will be brought out into the light. And all will see what we are and what we do. And to demonstrate this point, Zacharias, he's shown this really strange picture. I said all this big long intro because the pictures that we're going to see, the visions that we're going to see of Zechariah are really, really strange. And once again, Zechariah asks for help interpreting him. So we get the definitive interpretation from the from the angel. It says in verse one says then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. First thing we need to see is the dimensions of the scroll. The scroll Zechariah sees is 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. That's about 30 feet long, about 15 feet wide. Um, that's a pretty dang big scroll. Uh, we're talking about a scroll, you know, like that would, you would unroll. Um, when you think of a scroll, think of it's rolled up and it unrolls on both sides to, uh, 
you know, to lay flat long ways on a table so or, or some flat surface that you could read it. It's a big scroll. But what's instructive about the scroll is that the dimensions of it are the exact same dimensions of the holy place in the tabernacle. Now, and remember, the the rebuilding of the temple is going on, so this would have been pertinent to what he was seeing. But make sure you understand that this isn't the most holy place. This is not where the Shekinah glory dwelled and the um, the uh, Ark of the Covenant dwelled and all those things. Um, this is that's that's the holy of holiest, the holiest of holies. Um, it was a perfect square, and so it, that's not the dimensions of this. The holy place was just outside that, and that's where the priests did their work. It's where God communicated with man on a regular basis. You know, especially Moses. You can go back and see where Moses spoke with God face to face in the 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 tent of meeting in the tabernacle. Um, this is the place where God revealed Himself to the priests, and they they interceded for the, for the people. Um, but you know, when Solomon built the temple, the dimensions were a little different. Instead of thirty by fifteen foot, uh, he made it about forty five foot by by fifteen foot. But the dimensions of the scroll here wouldn't have been lost on those who were busy building the temple again. It would call to mind the dimensions of the tabernacle, which were very specific. God was specific when He taught when he uh, uh, inspired Moses to uh, give the dimensions of the tabernacle on how it was to be built, how it was to be put together. Uh, he was very, very specific as to how it should look and what it should be like And um, as he brought the people through the wilderness. Zechariah sees here a picture of God revealing himself. He's uh, showing him a flying scroll, which is a really weird picture. But, you know, a big flying scroll, if you saw a big flying scroll, you know, I keep wanting to say a flying squirrel. If you if you saw a big flying scroll, um, I would probably ask you, you know, what what you've been smoking. Um, it's a weird thing for us to visualize. Uh, I imagine I would freak out if, if I looked and saw a gigantic scroll 30 foot long flying around. Um, but in biblical prophecy now, this is where we have to train our thoughts. We have to remove ourselves from the modern context. In biblical pro- prophecy, the flying scroll is a... I mean, it's a very familiar picture. Uh, the vision of a scroll is pictured as God's judgment, and it's pronounced in Jeremiah 36, 1 through 3, uh, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, and even in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, you can see the scroll. And, and on those three places, I can make a darn good case that they all, um, they all pronounce the judgment of, of God, and we're going to see that that's what this scroll does too here in Zechariah. Uh, now, if you put the two, put these two facts together of the vision, what you have here is you got God giving judgment based on the revelation of Himself. God's judgments and ways are 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 given in His revelation, His Word. His Word is the basis for His judgment. Today, it's common that. Uh, for people to think that they and God, you know, have their own personal thing going. Just not five minutes ago, I saw someone who uh, claims to be a Christian posting about how they were really spiritual, but not really into the whole religious church thing. Not really into the whole the deal. Well, that flies directly in the face of what God has commanded, and so. 
God knows, uh, you know, they'll say, God knows my heart. You know, that's something I hear quite often. Uh, but you and I must understand that God will judge righteously based on his word. Uh, and it'll all be based on his word. It doesn't matter if you think you and him got your own thing going or or if you, uh, you know, want to soften this or, or, uh, or go easy on that. God's word is going to be the standard whether you like it or not. Uh, if his word says something's wrong, then it's wrong whether you believe it or not. I'm reminded of those bumper stickers that say God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that's that's a cute saying, but the reality is God's word says it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's true. Um, your circumstances don't matter. And there is no sense in justifying sinful behavior because of anything that we perceive as relevant. Uh, if, if God's word says it's sin, then it's sin. It's as simple as that. Now, you can take it to the bank. So, Zechariah, he sees this scroll, um, and it shows that God is coming with the oracles of judgment based on his revelation. Uh, how do you know that it's judgment? Okay, we're going to answer that verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Then he said to me, and he's explaining the scroll, he said, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So you see, that's exactly what the scroll is. It's, it's a purging. It's a, it's a judgment. It's bringing a curse upon those who break God's law. Here the, it's uh, uh, symbolized by those who steal and those who swear falsely. Um, first off, First off, before we even get into that, notice that the scroll is wrote, written on both sides. Now, of course, that may not seem much to us, but it's a very, very unusual thing. Men didn't used to write on both sides of the scroll. Uh, only one side was written on, so when the scroll was unrolled, you could read the entire document on one side. Um, that was the purpose of having a scroll that you know that you could unroll it and all the the document would be facing you uh the book or the codex didn't come along uh, actually there's a, a really good case to be made that the christians actually invented the codex um but once again here you see a picture that's used in other places in the bible in ezekiel 2 9 we referenced a minute ago we also see in ezekiel's vision that the scroll is written on the front and the back uh, and there in that scroll we find judgments against the sins of god's people uh, many talk about the scroll in revelation chapter 5 and uh, you know there are all kind of theories about what that scroll is and what it could be. You know, we're not specifically told uh, about what it is or whatever, but, uh, but both times in the Old Testament, when we see a scroll written on both sides, that's going to be here and in Ezekiel, uh, there are lists of judgments against sin and God's people. So that's what I think the scroll in Revelation is. Only the Lamb's worthy to open that scroll because only the Lamb is worthy to pay for those sins. And of course, you know, as the seals of that scroll are broken, what happens? Judgments follow. I mean, and so <clears throat> I hope you're I hope you're noticing, though, as we just a side note here. I hope you're noticing as we go through the book of Zechariah, um, we've found quite a few ties to the book of Revelation. And that's the same way with the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel, the book of Joel, the book of uh, Isaiah. Um, 
that's why I always say I, I hesitate to teach people the book of Revelation until they have a firm foundation of the Old Testament underneath them. Because once you start looking at Revelation and you start hollering black helicopters and nuclear bombs and all that, you've missed the message of the Bible. I'm sorry. Uh, the pictures that we see there are all taken from the Old Testament. To understand them in the context that John is presenting them in Revelation, you have to understand them in the context of a Jewish man reading the Old Testament and interpreting those symbols. And so it's not impossible to interpret the book of Revelation. And actually, the book of Revelation is not a scary book at all. It's actually a book of hope, a book of victory. Um, but so many people miss the message because they read Revelation with one hand and the newspaper with the next, and they try to find, you know. Anyway, we're in Zechariah, so back to Zechariah. Uh, here in, in chapter 5, we're told that the scroll is the curse that is traveling over the whole earth. It is God's judgment against sin, the consequences of that sin as it covers creation. The curse is it's over all of, all of those who break God's commandments. Um, I mean, look at what it says. It says the one who steals will be purged out of God's community. Uh, those who swear will be purged out of God's community. The idea here is to, is to swear falsely. So, um, you see, God has promised all these wonderful things to the people. He's promised that they would have victory. He's promised that he, they would be established as his people, that no one would stop their building efforts. No one would stop the task that he's given them to do. But there's still judgments against sin. God's salvation doesn't mean that he no longer hates sin. doesn't mean that he no longer is at war with sin. Breaking God's commandments brings inevitable judgments, and Zechariah is being shown uh, this picture to make sure that the people know that although God is merciful, and yes, he is forgiving, he is still very much a just God, a holy God, and a righteous God. They, they dare not fall back into the same things that sent their ancestors into exile in the first place. Um, God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy. So, moving to verse 4, the next thing is that God makes sure we understand that all sin will be judged. All of it. Uh, verse 4 says, I will make it go forth, declares the Lord. He's, he's talking about the scroll with the judgments. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and its stones. So notice that the Lord himself is the one that sends out the scroll. The judgments themselves come from God. When we think of, I don't know, punishment for sin and the condemnation of the sinner, uh, it, it's easy for us to separate God from all that, thinking he's the big granddaddy in the sky and he's up there just, you know, loving and weeping his poor little eyes out and, uh, you know, <laughs> And of course, God is a God of immense mercy and love. I don't want to downplay that. He has proven it over and over again. Um, but once again, this always has to be balanced. It has to be balanced. The whole counsel of God has got to be balanced with his perfect holiness. The angels in Isaiah chapter 6 are not flying around God's throne crying, love, love, love. They're flying around crying, holy, holy, holy. God is a perfect judge. There is no sin which will not receive punishment. Let me say that again. There is no sin which will not receive 
punishment. No law of God can be broken without the judgment of God falling. Now, having said that, that makes the message of the cross such good news. That's the reason Jesus came to die. That judgment for sin was poured out in its entirety on the Son. So when I say that uh, no sin will go unpunished, the punishment will either fall upon your head or it will fall upon the head of the Son of God who bears it in your place. Um, God doesn't just wink at sinners and disregard their sin because He's such a great guy, because He's so loving. Uh, He cannot do that and be a perfect God. Uh, Sin must be punished if He is a perfect judge. Uh, A judge that does not judge perfectly is not a perfect judge. And uh, if God is not perfect, that means He's not God. Um, But God did pour out that wrath on Jesus, so all those who trust in him could be declared not guilty. A substitute took that punishment. All sin will be punished, but a substitute stands ready to take that punishment. But make no mistake, unless, unless Christ removes that penalty, the wrath of an angry God abides on you. <clears throat> it abides on the sinner. Here in this verse, God says, I'll cause those judgments to go into the very homes of the thief and the liar. And the the scroll will consume his very house, is what he says. Um, That's a popular saying around uh, that says God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And then I want you to know that in a sense that is true. And I'm not going to deny that. God loved the world. You know, he loved the world so much that he sent his son. Uh, Paul says that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, no doubt that God loves all mankind. But I also want you to realize that, that God's wrath, His holy anger, rests on those who are disobedient and sinful, those who are outside of Christ. Uh, since all men are sinful, those who have not had their sin removed by the blood of Christ are right now, right now, at this moment, abiding under the wrath of God. Isn't that a scary thought, to think that the, the God of the universe is angry, angry at me. Yeah, of course we know that anger, for those of us who are in Christ, we know that anger was poured out on Christ and it doesn't exist anymore uh, for those who are found in His Son. But for the ones who are not in Christ, that anger is very real. Um, Concerning that little saying, you know, God loves the sinner and hates the sin, I want to read three Bible verses to you. And once again, I'm not saying that you know, I'm not saying God doesn't love or anything like that. Please remember to keep things in balance. Don't fall into a ditch on the left side or a ditch on the right side. Uh, love the sinner and hate the sin. Psalm 5, five says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Now listen, you hate all who do iniquity. That's what God is it's talking about God. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 11.5 The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Psalm 11.5 And then Psalm 34.16 says, The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's some pretty serious language. The Lord hates those who do iniquity? I mean, wow. Wow. 
Paul also talks about this when he says that the mind set on the flesh is enmity against God. Those in rebellion and sin have set themselves at war with God. They may not freely admit it. They may say, you know what, me and God got our thing and it's all good. You know, who would want to say that they're at war with God? But refusing to submit to the all-powerful God and thereby choosing to to uh, overthrow him as the Lord, whether it be of your life or the universe, is to be at war with him. But God here says that his judgments will visit those who live in such rebellion. Hell is not filled with sin, my friends. Hell is filled with sinners. And you and I are sinners. The whole world is sinners. It sounds like the message that's being given here is that um, God is just this mean old nasty being, but nothing could be further from the truth from the truth. He is perfect in his justice. When a law is broken, punishment must ensue. That's justice. And God is perfect in his justice, but he's also perfect in his love. And so rather than condemning all mankind, that means me, you, uh, my children, your children, my grandparents, rather than condemning everybody from the time of Adam all the way up until now and just sentencing us all to eternal damnation, he gave his only son to stand in the place So that wrath could be taken basically by himself. He poured out that wrath upon his son so that we could be in a perfect relationship with him. Uh, The passage here is making it clear that God cannot and will not tolerate sin. The people... um, They have his perfect promises that they're going to... to, uh, complete the the building project they're going to be reestablished as his people they'll be victorious uh, but they dare not think this gives them a license to do whatever they please god is at war with sin the people will decide which side they line up on as the battle goes forth it also shows us that there is nowhere sinners can hide from god's judgment you remember what it said it said the scroll it's going to go right into their homes and consume them. The scroll was sent into their very houses. Uh, man can't hide himself from God, thinking that his sin will never be seen. There will never be any reckoning for his actions. The, the curse of sin is a reality, and the punishment that comes with that curse will find you and will find me no matter how fast we run, no matter where we try to hide. Man, it's a lot of bad news in Zechariah chapter 5. All mankind is sinners. The very thought of the judgment and the, the the war God is currently waging against the curse of sin, it should be unnerving to us. I mean, that's some scary stuff when you think about it. Zechariah is telling the people that they're on notice. God will not tolerate any sin, and whoever sins will have God's judgment. Seek them out wherever they are. I don't know about you, but man, I would be a little worried. I I would be terrified. Uh, I'd be a lot worried. It sounds like sounds like we better be walking on pins and needles, making sure we do everything right. Uh, but you and I know that that is a hopeless endeavor. If we uh, if we try to do it in our own strength, if we try to obey the law and be saved by the law, I mean, you know what that leads to. It, it leads to nothing but failure and damnation. That's why we need Christ. And God the Father knows that as well. Uh, 
So now, now that Zechariah has brought forth the bad news and he showed all this condemnation that's seeking out sinners, uh, God shows him a vision, the rest of this chapter, a vision of the good news. Verse 5, it says, uh, 5 through 7 says, Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah going forth. An ephah is a unit of measurement. Uh, again, he said, this is, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. So an ephah, picture it as a basket. It's a basket that's used to measure grain. Uh, the Hebrews used it as a unit of measurement. It's uh, it's almost a bushel, maybe three fourths of a bushel. You know, so if you know about that kind of stuff, that's how much it is. But picture it. It's an ephah, is what it's called in, in scripture, and it's all through scripture. But picture it as a basket. Zechariah looks and he sees this this basket going forth. Uh, it's moving away from God's people. It's moving away from God's land. And there's a lead cover on top of it. And when that lead cover is lifted, Zechariah sees a little woman sitting inside the basket. Oh, yeah, okay, I know it's a weird picture. Uh, you know, first you got a flying scroll, which is the judgments coming against sin. And then we have this basket that's moving away from the land with a little lady inside. Uh, but, but once again, we don't we don't even have to play and guess what it means, what the interpretation is. The angel's going to tell us. He says, "So let me read." He says, and he said, "This is wickedness." The woman inside the basket represents wickedness, and he said, "This is wickedness." And he thrust her back into the basket. This is uh, verse eight, and he said, "This is wickedness." And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. The woman represents the wickedness of the people. Instead of letting that wickedness run loose and God's judgment hunting them down, going into their homes, uh, you know, causing that judgment to fall on people and consume their homes, God Himself thrusts that wickedness down into this into this basket, this ephah, and contains it with a lead with a lead lid. And he is in the process of moving it away from the people. God himself is going to redeem the people and remove that wickedness. Uh, it says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked. This is uh, verse 9. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there, and there were two women. There two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Okay, so now we have two women with wings like storks lifting up the basket to take it away. Um, you know, I, I got you. I understand. It's, it, the picture just keeps getting stranger and stranger. But we need to forget the modern concept of all these things and try to think as the people who are building this, uh, building the city back would think. The concept of a stork, for instance. You know, if I was writing this, I would have said they would have had wings like eagles, and you would have thought, "Wow, they were majesty and and look how beautiful and all that." Uh, you see a stork, and you're thinking, you know, I, I'm always thinking about the stork carrying the tied up diaper with a little baby in it or something, you know, or or that cartoon guy from the Vlasic pickle commercial, you know, that kind of. But in the ancient Near East, the stork was known for it was known for its powerful wings. 
and it was known for its long migration patterns. I mean, it could fly. It it seemed like when they would when they look up and see storks, it just seemed like they could fly forever. And you know, they could just fly and fly and fly, and never had to never had to had to stop, never had to sit down. That's what it seemed like to them. So Zechariah is seeing a picture of God's servants removing sin from the land. The two women, um, verse ten and eleven, were the last two verses. It says, I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Okay. Okay. So the basket, the ephah is the, contains the wickedness. It's been contained. It's being taken away. And when he asked where they're taking it, he says, we're going to build a temple for it in Shinar, and we're going to set it on a pedestal there. Okay, so Zechariah seeing is some strange visions, and he asked where they're taking it, and so they go into Shinar. Um, once again, of course, this probably doesn't mean much to many of us, but when you read the Old Testament, you will notice that Shinar was the region that included Babylon. It was the region of Babylon. It was where the wicked people of Babylon were come. Um, if you look in Genesis, uh, I can't think of the. I want to say five ten. Anyway, I've got it written here. It says, "In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar." Um, also. It's interesting. I know you'll know this. That Shinar is the place where the people tried to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Um, it's also, let's see, it's also uh, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city of Jerusalem and took captives, they were taken to Shinar. Now, Daniel 1 verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure of the house of his God. And even Isaiah prophesied that the people in captivity would be brought back from where? The land of Shinar, verse uh, chapter Isaiah chapter eleven, verse eleven, and it came to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, and from Shinar. So Shinar is the land of Babylon. It's the land. It is the quintessential place of wickedness in uh, biblical symbolism. Uh, it's a place of wickedness all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 11, it's where the people first tried to rebel against God, and in Revelation, Babylon is the city of the city that tries to rebel against God. Uh, the symbol here is that the sin of the people will be cast to where sin goes, and it will be taken away from them. Um, it'll be taken away from them so that the judgment of God won't destroy them. Sin is being cast away from God's sight. It's a separation. God's people in God's holy place, separated from their sin, separated from sin itself, and that sin taken to the place where it belongs, taken to the place where sin dwells. You have a distinction being made between Jerusalem and Babylon. You have the perfect people of God, which 
will inevitably be, and we'll see in the New Testament that's fulfilled in Christ, uh, you have that separated uh, from sin, from wickedness. But wait a minute. Isn't sin still here? Uh, I mean, of course it is. But today, just like then, sin and the curse is being taken away one soul at a time. And if you're a believer in Christ, all your sin has been taken away and nailed to the cross. But even now, every day that you live, the Spirit is growing you in holiness and taking more and more of the practice of that sin away of our lives. It's, it's called sanctification. We're moving toward holiness. We live in a time that, that, um, that many Bible scholars call uh, the already and the not yet the already, not yet. Uh, already we're in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not yet fully consummated on the earth. Already we're perfected in the sight of the Father. But we're not yet perfect in our daily lives. Already Jesus has made our righteousness. He's made us righteous. But we're still growing in that righteousness practically. The picture of Zechariah chapter 5 is clear. Uh, salvation sin is removed and, and it's taken away and God himself um, who has promised all these things to the people who are building the temple and reestablishing the, the city all these things that are, that are promised um, God himself is going to fulfill those promises and God himself is not going to allow sin to stand in the way he's going to separate it as a surgeon does with a scalpel he's going to separate the people from those sins and he's going to like psalm 103 says he's going to cast that sin as far as the east is from the west and he's going to remove that transgression from us and that's the picture zechariah sees here the he sees a judgments coming coming to consume men in their houses whoever has broken the law and then he sees a vision of of the wickedness of the people being carried away by god's servants as if it were a basket and taken to the land of wickedness and and separated from god's people today we're we're waiting on the final consummate consummation of this victory that we see already taking place um, we see that consummation in revelation 21 at the end sin will be gone and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth so the message of zechariah zechariah 5 is clear the people have the promise, uh, but they need to understand that God is still at war with sin. He is at war with sin. They can't fall back into their old ways just because they think they're invincible due to God's promise. The new heart does not allow that kind of attitude. Uh, sin is being assaulted every day in the believer's life because God hates sin. And those who have been born again of God also hate sin. But there is a perfect fulfillment and a promise in these visions that even though man is sinful and man is wicked and man is uh, disobedient in his heart, God himself will take that sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west and thereby ensure that his promises to his people will be fulfilled.